Brussels is widely acknowledged as one of the world's greatest beer cities. But according to today's guest, author, beer writer, and podcaster, Owen Walsh, it's a curious distinction for a town that until recently only had a single brewery. On this third episode of Beer Travelers podcast, we dive deep into the history and current state of beer and brewing in Brussels, Belgium. And Owen has a point. Beer lovers, especially those here in the U.S., tend to canonize Belgium and Brussels. We speak adoringly of its cafe culture, the care with which each beer is served. And much of that stems from the unique place that a brewery such as Cantillon holds in the hearts of all beer fans. But in reality, the history of beer in Brussels has been up and down for the better part of a century. Even in recent years, the city's beer and brewing scenes have been in great peril, assisted in part by that adoration of beer geeks from around the globe, and of course their tourist dollars, Brussels is making a comeback. And today, Owen Walsh walks us through the city's vibrant and curious brewing history and updates us on the status of things today and what's to come in the future. Owen runs Brussels Beer City, a great website you should visit, and he's the author of a book of the same name, as well as the more recently published A History of Brussels Beer in 50 Objects. For more on those projects, I recommend listening to the podcast that Owen and I recorded together back in January of 2022 on Beer Edge. But today, we're talking about Brussels and its beer scene and culture. It's an incredibly informative conversation, and it left me excited to return to Brussels and visit some of the spots Owen talks about. Stay tuned at the end of the episode for one of my personal favorite suggestions for Brussels, another great place for a nightcap or to escape the crowds of the Grand Place and the tourist dens. In this episode of Beer Travelers, we discover Brussels, from its robust days of brewing to its humbler yet growing modern times. We try to capture all the city has to offer in this episode. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. Why take a vacation when you can beercation instead? Explore the world one pint at a time and join pub culture beercations for one of our upcoming group tours, like Going Dutch, Beer in the Netherlands, with award-winning Dutch beer and travel writer Tim Skelton. As the author of Beer in the Netherlands and Around Amsterdam and 80 Beers, join Tim April 29th through May 11th, 2023 for 11 beery nights as he explores the sights, history, culture, and beer of this often overlooked beercation destination. Visit pubculturebeercations.com for more information. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com slash allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts. So let's begin our journey to Brussels, Belgium with Owen Walsh. Today on the third episode of the Beer Travelers podcast, we head to one of the world's great beer cities, Brussels, Belgium. And naturally, there's no one better to speak about the local scene than an Irishman. Owen Walsh, welcome. Thanks very much. For those who don't know, Owen runs a great website, Brussels Beer City. He's also the creator of a history of Brussels beer in 50 objects. Uh, for more on those particular endeavors, I recommend listening to a podcast that Owen and I recorded earlier this year on our other podcast, Beer Edge. But today we're talking Brussels. Uh, and as we were discussing before we got on, I've been to Brussels many times over my my beer travels, You know, some even before beer, you know, I was interested in beer. Uh, but I imagine a lot has changed, and it's been it's been quite some time since I've been there. So I'm excited to kind of get the lay of the land here. So you know, as a start, I think a lot of beer folks, you know, people who are interested in beer, have some sort of concept of what they think Brussels and Belgian beer might be. For some, they consider it kind of a Disneyland. Others, they consider it a land of of, of beers that are that are tart or sour that they might not be to their palate. But how would you describe Brussels to people and in, in, in terms of just the city itself and then its beer scene? Well, I think it's interesting that you said one of the great beer cities, because I think while that has been true for a long time, it's only in the last half decade where it's actually become a good brewing city. Mm. Um, so we were talking off mic that you, you said that your last trip to Brussels was maybe eight or nine years ago. Um, since then, the city has gone from two breweries at that time. So we're talking the mid 2010s, early 2010s to at least 20. And the number wow. keeps ticking, t- keeps ticking upwards um, every year. And I know that does that may not sound a lot because I know in a lot of U.S. cities, 
you know, 20 breweries is a drop in the ocean. Um, but for Brussels, that's been a huge step change uh, because historically, at the, I mean, for when I moved to Brussels in 2009, there was only one brewery and that was Brasserie Cantillon mm-hmm. brewing Kurs and Lambic, as you were, as you were saying, you know, that's sort of the, the ur beer of, of Brussels, the, the, the traditional beer that I think is most closely and, and quite rightly associated with the city, you know, brewed here for a couple of hundred years, brewed only here and in sort of a couple of villages to the Southwest, um, you know, a complex, confusing beer <clears throat> that takes a very long time to make. And I think the kind of beer style that would not be invented today, it exi- mm. you know, if it didn't already exist. Um, but Brussels as a beer city is is a really interesting. It's a really interesting place at the moment because it has, as you said, that sort of Disneyland, that mix of the kind of Disneyland where you have the traditional old brown cafes serving, you know, the kind of classic Belgian beers that would have been topping, you know, rate beer best best beer of the year right. charts 20, 20 years ago. Um, you also have uh, the kind of new wave modern craft independent bars uh, that would be familiar to anybody who's ever been to a craft beer bar in london or la or berlin you know it's mm-hmm. the same kind of vibe um where they're serving both international and you know local craft beer and then you have a really interesting sort of culinary foodie kind of mix where you have uh small uh restaurants and and dining establishments that are into beer and have a really carefully thought out um you know beer menu so you so these are all things that you know historically, and then obviously you have all of the crappy cafes where you can go mm-hmm. and drink your Jupiter, yeah. your, your Jupiter or your Stella, your Mass, um, you know, watch the football and and not worry about the beer as well and just have a good time. So it's, I mean, it's really interesting that we have that mix now because when I moved to Brussels, the food wasn't there, and the and the sort of the new wave beer wasn't there either. You say we've gone from you know in relatively short order from one to two to 20 plus breweries. What are a lot of those breweries like at this point? Because I think for a lot of travelers, they, they expect them to be these traditional spots, Cantillon, things along those lines. Yeah. Are we, are, is it a lot of hazy IPA? Is that where we, is that something that's happening in the, the local scene or is it more mm-hmm. along akin to some, you know, more of the traditional Belgian styles? Um, No, I would say probably, well, uh, no is a bit too, uh, is a bit too, firm um you have the traditional so uh up until last year cantillon were the only people brewing lambic in the city now that's changed with the arrival of a brussels beer project's lambic project mm-hmm. which started last year and subsequently we've had two new breweries this year who are uh, have started brewing lambic they haven't yet brought out a goose um so that's 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 one thing um, you kind of have to look at it f- from a historical perspective. So Cantillon came along. Nobody was doing that. Nobody tried to do that because it's too hard and too expensive. In 2010, Brasserie de la Seine uh, opened in an old factory in 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 the west of the city. And that sort of set the template of what a modern Brussels brewery is mm-hmm. like. Uh, so obviously famous for beers like Zinnebeer and Taras Bulba, I know is quite popular over in the States. You know, light, bitter, refreshing beers, with a serious, a serious bitter edge, uh, using you know continental noble hops, and drinkability being sort of the prime, um, trademark of those kinds of beers, and a lot of what's followed since then, so in the last twelve years, has been sort of either along that, uh, template, or reacting to that template. Mm-hmm. If you get if you get what I'm saying, so you have breweries who follow, uh, the Delacent template of brewing small, local, you know, easy drinking beers with a couple of, you know, strong traditional Belgians in there. Um, uh, breweries like Unstummelings um, and, and several others. And then you have the more self-consciously crafty, craft independent uh, breweries, people like Brussels Beer Project or um, La Source, which is a brew, uh, which is a sort of a brew pub just around the corner from me, uh, who are definitely exploring that sort of U.S. influence and um, the U.S. influence is strong. So you do have, you know, hazy IPAs, plenty of breweries brewing hazy IPAs. But what's more, what's more sort of influential or has been in Brussels is less so the U.S. scene, partly because it's far away and also because the beers, when they arrive here, I think that's the story all this time. 
they're not the same kind right, of right. that it would be that you would be drinking fresh. Uh, the scene that's most influential is um, is the London scene and kind of English brewing more generally. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, now, in terms of just to take a, a bit of a step back, I know that in your work, you've done a lot of writing about this. What is sort of the history of brewing in beer in Brussels? And and was it always just that Cantillon was the only only game in town? Or was it at some point a, a, a larger scene that, you know, in like many, many cities and states around the United States, eventually faded out, uh, only to be reborn during craft beer? How far do we want to go back? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, if we go back 100 years, um, because that's probably the most interest. Well, 100, 120 years, I say turn of the 19th from the 1800s into the 1900s, you'd have had about a hundred breweries in the city. Wow. So you have to imagine, yeah, you'd imagine Brussels at that time. Well, a hundred is, let's say, and an, a sort of ambitious figure, but you have to imagine Brussels at that time would have been, it was the capital of Belgium. It was the economic heart of Belgium. It was also the industrial heart of Belgium. Um, so it had a large working class industrial population living in right in the center of the city. Um, and a big part of that industry was brewing. Um, so you did have the traditional lambic brewers who were brewing large, large scale lambic and, you know, taking up, I think it's something like a quarter of all the warehouse space in Brussels was put aside for, oh, wow. for aging, aging beer. Um, but you also had at that time the arrival of these huge beer factories, industrial breweries for the first time brewing um, German style. So Bavarian beer on the one hand. So box and Bavieres and Lagers and that thing. And then on the other hand, you had breweries who were doing English styles. So pale ales, stouts and scotch in particular, scotch ales in particular were hugely popular. Um, so they kind of, that was sort of the scene at the time. You had this huge mix of different beers. It was, it was, it was a cornucopia of different styles. Uh, World War One came along, kind of sloughed through a good chunk of that. In between World War One and World War Two, there was another sort of bloom. And at one point, Brussels had, one of the largest brew houses in Europe at that time in the 1930s. Um, again, focused on brewing English beers. And then World War II came along and slowed off another uh, large portion. And then what you saw in the sort of second half of the 20th century, which is, I think, a story that will be familiar in the US and in the UK, is the rise of national brands, mm -hmm. consolidation, consolidation um, the energy crisis in the 1970s. I mean, talk about history going full circle um, yeah. energy crisis in the 1970s breweries picking each other off until you know the last and the biggest were the ones standing and then themselves being picked off and bought up by uh, breweries like Stella Artois and Leuven um, Watney's uh, which ultimately became Heineken Heineken were buying breweries even Schlitz the US brewery bought a bought a brewery in uh, in uh, in Belgium in, in, in Brussels it didn't work out Um <laughs> And then by the 1980s, so 1988, the last major non-Lambic producing brewery closed in Brussels. You had two breweries. One of them was Cantillon and the other one was uh, Bellevue, which is industrial Lambic, mm -hmm. so sweetened, sweetened, artificial, um, pasteurized. And the story goes, like you, you, I can't remember which Lambic brewer told me this, but um, Bellevue, they bought out basically all the competition. They didn't buy out Cantillon because at that time there was nothing really to buy out. Mm -hmm. uh, Cantillon survived because in the 1970s, uh, Jean-Pierre Vanois, who's the father of the current owner or the current person who runs it, um, he turned the, the brewery into a living museum. Right. And in the 70s and the 80s, uh, they used the income from the museum to keep the brewery going. And then by the 90s, uh, Japanese and Italian drinkers particularly had discovered Lambic and mm -hmm. Americans discovered it. And then, you know, that, a long pilgrimage from all over the world to Anderlecht in yeah. Brussels began and the Coors and Lambic tradition went from being in terminal decline to survival to state to, to equilibrium to growth and we're in a growth phase at the moment so that's sort of to yeah uh you know uh, a very short precy of let's say the last 120 years and it's also why like basically Brussels brewing started from a blank canvas in 2009, 2010. Um, I think that's sort of a fascinating way to put it. And, and thank you for that, because I, I knew some of that, but actually, frankly, I didn't know a majority of it. Um, it's kind of the blank canvas is, is a really interesting way to put it. 
I've obviously done that that pilgrimage myself to to Cantillon, you know, several times, including during some of their open house brew days yeah. over you know where I would run into Tommy Arthur or folks from Russian River or you know the same people from across the United States doing the same the same sort of travel that I did, coming <clears throat> to what I would have considered to be kind of that traditional source and and kind of this. Um, this place, uh, almost this house of worship for those of us yep. in the States who are looking for looking for some sort of history and tradition that we lacked ourselves. How, you know, how has it been for, for, you know, the local beer scene? I mean, you, sort of you describe it in kind of stark ways in terms of its status, but how, it, how has it managed to preserve some of this tradition while also kind of acknowledging the inevitable march of modernity and, and the change of styles and the influence, like you said, of American and, and British craft brewers? Uh, it's a good question. Um, I mean, on the one hand, so Cantillon and the Van Watt family who run it uh, have been hugely supportive of the new, if we're talking about breweries in particular, they've been hugely supportive of the new brewers and breweries that have emerged over the last 10 years. Um, I mean, Ivan Debats, who runs Brasser de la Seine, he did a short stint in work, yeah, working in Cantillon. A lot of brewers have, have gone through the Cantillon, you mm -hmm. know, way of doing things. So, you know, there's sort of two brewing schools in Brussels. There's the Brasser de la Seine School of Brewing and then there's the Cantillon. And there's quite a significant overlap in terms of the family tree of where all the different brewers have come from. Um. So all of the new brewers have, I think, like a lot of their counterparts in the US and UK, have a massive respect for the tradition. And for as as much as they have respect for the beers and they love the beers and how they taste, it was a sort of perseverance of that tradition that they have such mm -hmm. huge respect for. It, it also helped with the fact that nobody was attempting to do it themselves. Right. So they knew they knew better. They knew better than that. But, um, you know, I mean, to be to be quite frank, like that tradition survived because of the interest of people who live outside of Brussels. Mm -hmm. Like if you, if I mean, people who have lived in Brussels or who come to visit Brussels, you know, you can't get, or historically at least, Cantillon, it wasn't like it was everywhere. Right, it was, right. It was nowhere. I mean, it was in specialist beer cafes, but it wasn't a beer, for, for this sounds trite, but it wasn't a beer for the common man. Right. You know, it had been a hundred years ago, but that that time had passed. And it was really a specialist product, you know, and it still is. It's it's a little bit more accessible now than it used to be for the reasons I mentioned before, but it's still it's still a niche. Right. And I think what the modern what the contemporary generation of brewers have been successful at is brewing more mainstream beers and working their arses off, you know, tap by tap, pub by pub, getting those beers either on the bottle list, which is a little bit easier um, or even on taps, which is incredibly difficult in Brussels because most of the cafes, like in all of Belgium, they're owned by um, one of the big brewers and the landlords. Obviously, the system here, you know, you serve what the what the brewery wants you to serve, and it's at their discretion as to whether they let you put on something local. Um, so it's been quite difficult, but they've been very successful in brewing more more mainstream beers, and then sort of what you're seeing now as the scene matures is. They're becoming. They've carved out enough of a niche for themselves to become a little bit more experimental, and to push the boundaries of what's of of what's mainstream. Essentially, trying to get some of that more more complex beers in front of customers who would maybe traditionally have been attracted by you know the IPAs or the pilsners mm -hmm. or whatever. Yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things that I learned early in some of my trips to to Brussels and throughout Belgium. I I think we in the States had largely romanticized Belgian beer culture because we would go and have these, these sort of unique or, or singular experiences to our mind where we'd go to a brown cafe or a classic <clears throat> Belgian cafe and beers would be served in baskets tilted on their sides with a, you know, with all of this, you know, what felt like this yeah. heavy tradition uh, in every, you know, in we've written about it for, for decades about, you know, whether it's from Michael Jackson on down talking about how each Belgian beer has its own singular glass and that it's designed yeah. specifically for that beer versus here in the States, you know, we largely have, 
you know, our beers are all served in this this kind of utilitarian 16 ounce mm-hmm. glass that, you know, it's its main benefit is that you can stack a number of them on top of one another. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of the in, you know, we had either get stadium pours with no head on the beers or they'd come flat. We just didn't have any any kind of uh, presentation and none of that ceremony. So yeah. it was always interesting for me to see, you know, the local, you know, the local people that, like you said, Cantillon was not something that, you know, people were not just drinking Lambic, you know, every single day that, you know, Jupiler was this, this standout product. And that, that so much of that production had been exported to thirsty drinkers in, you know, in, in China and, and, and Tokyo and San Francisco and around the United States and, and other, and, and, in in Britain as well. Um, And so do you think that the locals are are gaining a greater appreciation for that tradition? Is there more of a a palate for for more of those traditional beers, or do they still look at us beer travelers and beer tourists as kind of these quizzical, unusual folks drinking beers that they otherwise can't imagine drinking? I think it's probably both. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I think I think people still look with a certain amount of bewilderment at. Mm. The I think it's probably it's not so much the, the the interest, but it's the the level of passion um that certain segments of the sort of modern beer drinking community mm-hmm. uh, attaches to these beers um and the level and and the willingness of people to travel halfway around the world to stay right. in a queue for four hours I think confuses certain people and also the fact that Cantillon is it's in a pretty working class neighborhood right. Um, I mean, there's like an, there's a evangelical church across, uh, you know, down the road and there's, you know, there's there's textile textile shops around the corner. It's not exactly a, a nightlife neighborhood. So it's always yeah. quite funny uh, when there's a big event on. Um, I think I think there is if I I, I don't want to talk in general, I'm talking in generalizations here a little bit, but there is more, I think, of an awareness and appreciation for the beers. And that comes from a couple of different places. I think you have like in a lot of cities that that sort of modern day movement towards local produce valuing the what what's produced locally mm-hmm. um especially if it has a particular you know narrative and story that's romantic and attractive behind it and um, we don't have any uh, vineyards in brussels uh, but it's the same kind of aesthetic and mm-hmm. vibe that gets people interested in natural wine and and that sort of thing and you actually see some of the lambic producers in brussels well in brussels not so much, but a little bit outside, who are kind of targeting that that market, a kind of drinker, not necessarily a beer drinker, but a drinker who's been attracted by the sort of less orthodox flavors that they've discovered in natural wine. And they're able to say, well, look, we have beers that are that have a similar narrative and a similar kind of complexity. And they're actually more stable and taste nicer than the mousy, you know, weird shit that you've been mm-hmm. drinking in your local natural <laughs> wine bar. Um, so you're seeing a certain crossover there. I think there is just... Uh, and and there is an appreciation there, and I think that's growing. And I think it's great to see you have a new generation of of chefs and restaurateurs who are also really interested in those beers. They see they see in the same way that they might see with natural wine again, um, that those beers can add something to what they're doing, either with the food or with the drinks menu as a sort of. On the one hand, you know we support Brussels. This is a Brussels dish, for, and and we're gonna serve Brussels food, a uh, Brussels drink uh, with it. And also, you know, that complexity that we talk about with Lambic. You and know, I cer- that's there too. And I certainly want to talk about Lambic, but one of the topics that I think doesn't get covered enough is the Belgian love of lager. And, mm-hmm. and it seems stronger there than, I mean, it's the same sort of thing that you see in the UK as well, where um, you know, we, we, again, from the States and our, in our sort of, you know, centric viewpoint here in in the United States, we we expect everyone to be drinking cask ale just as we expect everyone to be drinking lambic. You know, yeah. when we you know when we visit <laughs> London or Bel- or or Brussels, but that's certainly not the case. So, what? How would you describe Belgian lager? Its role, its influence, the strength of uh, of it in the culture and in its dominance of just of just the the local and the Belgian scene um, to folks outside of outside of the country. Well, it's it's the default beer, basically. Um, the the country's largest breweries are all lager breweries. Mm-hmm. Um, Stella, um, ABMB, uh, Mass, uh, owned by Heineken, um, and oh, there's a few others. Um, Alken Mass, which also yeah, they have their own brand as well. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, this sort of we talk about Belgian beer culture and cafe culture. You know, the 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 standard drink is a twenty five centiliter uh, draft pour of Stella or Jupiler mm-hmm. or uh, Alken Cristal or Mass, depending on w- what part of the country you're in. That's sort of the standard, and it's something that I would do too if I if I was going to a cafe. I have a particular cafe that I go down to, um, not too far from my house, and. They serve Stella. It's one actually one of the few bars in Brussels that serve Stella, um, and you know it's the cheapest thing on the menu. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you just want to drink something and you don't want to think about it too much, and you may be a little bit conscious of your pennies, uh, it's the it's the default option. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the, it's the it's the beer that you have in your hand when you're on a night out. Like, yeah. uh, you know, I'm not a student anymore. It's been a long time since I was a student, but the the student culture here is. You know, either you go and you get your your cheap supermarket beers um, and you go and drink them somewhere with friends or you go to the local student bar and you drink small, cheap, cold glasses of yeah. whatever the lo- whatever the local pills is. And then, you know, once you have that habit, you don't you don't you don't lose it. You, when you get a bit older, you start maybe drinking the, the heavier beers and you drink maybe fewer of them than you used to. But uh, that's sort of the tradition. Um, and also it's market dominance, like the, the, the largest brewers who brew the most amount of beer brew pills. So yeah. they have they have the they have that center of gravity, which sort of bends everything around them. What's been really interesting talking about Brussels, um, the new generation of brewers, they didn't really brew lager and pills for a long time. Um, for a number of reasons, I think, you know, the brewers will tell you that it's a difficult beer to brew mm-hmm. and there's no hiding, et cetera. You know, those old cliches. Yeah. Um, but also... I think, you know, there's a bit of like, what's the point or what was the point? Mm-hmm. Like, what are, you know, we're trying to make ourselves different. But now that's changed. Um, we have a lager centric brewery, actually, that opened up last year. Um, and uh, Brasserie de la Seine launched when they moved in. So they moved into their purpose built brewery uh, two years ago, just before the pandemic, actually. And the first beer that they brewed was a northern German style Pils- mm. uh, Pilsner. Um, which was huge because like bottom first bottom fermentation beer that they've they that they, they brewed as a core beer, fantastic beer as well. Like I mean, it's De La Seine, so the the threshold for quality is 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 really high, and you've seen now more brewers are more likely to put a pills on because that's the bread and butter. Mm-hmm. That's like you know if you really want to crack it, if you got want to get your beers into the supermarket, and you want people to buy them. Then that's the way to do it if that's what you want to do. And mm-hmm. uh, we've seen we've seen that over the last sort of three or four years, people start putting out uh, lager beers, which has been great because it means that if you're lucky and you're in a bar that has Xenopils instead of Stella, you can do the same thing um, while supporting somebody local. Now we've mentioned it many many times so far, and it's it's just almost inextricable with the name of Brussels itself. But let's talk more specifically about Cantillon. Uh, we can talk a little bit about its history, but why don't we just start for those who are not as familiar or those who need a bit of a refresher? What is Lambic and how is it made? How do you, how do you, and I'm sure that, you know, this is a question that, that could raise ire or, or start arguments, but just sort of, you gave a great couple of minutes on the history of, of, of brewing in, in Brussels. I will ask you to do the same uh, on, uh, for just Lambic. Okay, I'm better at the history than I am about the technical details. <laughs> That's what some of my book is about uh, about history than it is about making beer. Uh, so Lambic uh, is basically a spontaneously fermented wheat beer brewed in Brussels, traditionally brewed in Brussels in the Seine Valley, which is the river that Brussels was founded on. Um, and it is brewed with a, a complicated mash schedule, uh, which takes several hours. Um, it's called in Dutch the slay method, the slime method. Um, uh, and it's uh, it's all about uh, getting you know complex sugars together. Uh, it's cooled overnight in a cool ship uh, at the top of the uh, Cantillon have their cool ship on the top of the brewery. A cool ship essentially is just a very big copper vat, mm-hmm. big a big bath for the beer. It's cooled overnight there, and once it's cooled down um, overnight, it's put into wooden barrels uh, in the brewery to age from for anywhere from six months and a year up to three years. So Lambic is the base beer. And then from Lambic, um, you produce, traditionally you would produce Gers, Oudegers, Old Gers, um, which is what, what uh, Cantillon would produce, even though they don't call it that, uh, is a mixture of one, two, and three-year-old Lambics. Uh, the reason for that is um, the three-year-old Lambic will 
um, give character, a depth of flavor, complexity of fermentation. Um, the one-year-old will give uh, sugars and freshness and brightness, and then the two-year sort of marries it together. Um, uh, lambic ferment, uh, lambic fermentation. Um, most so the 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 myth around lambic is that it's all about the air. Mm -hmm. So the beer cools down overnight in the air, and you can only so one in one sense it's true because the brewing season is from October to April thereabouts. Mm -hmm. uh, normally speaking, the ambient temperature can only be between sort of minus eight and plus eight degrees Celsius. Uh, any warmer than that and you get inoculation with unwanted microbes, any cooler than that and nothing happens. Uh, so it's a winter beer brewed over mm -hmm. the winter uh, and then aged through the summer and, and into the next season. Um, now, the myth being that it's, uh, you know, the, why they say this beer used to only be made here was because there was a very special microbiome in brussels and we we all oh. read these books and articles and, and now, thought amazing things and then we all stopped by cantillon and i know where yeah. this tell us where the story is going if if you've ever been to brussels you know that the air quality is not fantastic <laughs> um so it's a hardy hardy microbes but basically I, I i mean there is some inoculation overnight but most of what happens happens in the barrels mm -hmm. uh, so in the barrels you have a rich uh, microbio microflora uh you're talking um you know uh Britannomyces yeast pediococcus lactobacillus all these different yeasts and bacteria that work together through that fermentation over various different stages of which I'm not going to get into because if mm -hmm. I did I would only I would only embarrass <laughs> myself I would only embarrass myself but basically different microbes work on the beer at different times and they produce then this complex tart funky uh, beer that you shouldn't call sour um, mm -hmm. because people get upset when you say Lambic is a, is a sour beer. <laughs> it is a beer with, it is a beer with certain amount of acidity. Um, and then what you get at the end when you, when you blend them. So Lambic in and of itself is a flat beer uh, and young Lambic actually, which you can buy sometimes at Cantillon is usually served bag in a box. Um, and it's actually really nice as a refreshing beer, but good is a sort of bright, clear, amber, sparkling beer, um, which has some, you know, it has that funkiness, it has some tartness, it has some breadth complexity, um, and it's a really easy drinking beer, actually. I mean, okay, mm -hmm. you gotta you gotta get used to the acidity at a certain point, but I mean, the sort of misnomer is that all these beers are super tart and super acidic. That's not necessarily the right. case, and and when we're talking about acidity, we're more talking about a sort of smooth lactic acidity with some acetic but if when your beer starts to get that kind of acetic edge sharpness to it then something has gone wrong mm -hmm. that's sort of lambic in a nutshell and then you have so that's lambic and gers you have greek which is then when it's macerated on cherries and raspberries you have framboise which is with raspberries and then cantillon have over the last 10 years massively experimented in uh, grape lambics so using all sorts because they have they are very as as we were talking about natural wine and biodynamic wine producers organic wine they have a very deep relationship with a lot of wine producers in France and particularly in Italy um so they're constantly experimenting with different uh, grape varieties wine varieties using must using different fruit um and that's been really interesting to see and it's it's something that you can really get a get a handle on once you go to the brewery itself and sit down in the tap room in in the bar that they have at the back of the brewery and you can you know go through the the various different cornucopia of different uh, grape variety lambics that they have we'll be right back with more beer travelers after a message from our sponsors stop living vicariously through other people's social media posts and get out and make some memories of your own join pub culture beercations for one of our upcoming tours and start exploring the world one pint at a time with us visit pubculturebeercations.com for more information Want more beer for your ears? The new All About Beer podcast, hosted by M. Sauter and Don Tess, takes a deep, engaging dive into the hottest topics in beer. Do you need to know what the heck a cold IPA is? Check out the first episode wherever you get your pods. New episodes drop every other Thursday. And now, back to Beer Travelers. We've talked a little bit about Cantillon and a little bit about its history and the role it plays in both, you know, sort of the Brussels and the Belgian beer scenes and in 
sour tart beer production throughout the world and and some of its history. How would you just care? I mean, if you were to try to explain Cantillon's relationship to the city of Brussels and its beer scene, how do you how do you start to describe that to somebody who maybe isn't familiar with it? I think they're sort of sui generis. You know, they have been uh, they've been hugely influential, but they haven't they have no direct descendants, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. So Jean Jean Vanois, who runs the brewery, um, together with his wife and his and his sons, you know, him and Yvan de Bass have sort of it sort of tried to call it a godfather role, but they have this sort of because they've they're they're the great survivors yeah. and they have this uh, institutional knowledge. Um they've been very helpful in helping new brewers establish themselves. Mm-hmm. So you often talk with brewers uh, who will tell you if they haven't actually worked there. So um, we have a new brewery, Brasserie de la Mule, uh, Brasserie de la Mule, um, who, who make uh, lager beers and saisons, so nothing Lamic related. Uh, Joel, who works there, he spent a season working in uh, Cantillon, several of the others did too. But in the early days, you'd, you'd talk to brewers and they'd be like, if we need something, even if it's just like a couple of crates or some empty bottles, you know, we can always call up Jean or mm-hmm. Ivan at, at Delison and they'll help us. They'll give it to us. You know, if we, if we need some help selling some beers or something like this, that, or the other, they're always there to help, to give advice um, and to support, you know, local because it's in their interest too. So, I mean, Cantillon were around by themselves for a long time and I think they enjoy the company now. Um, And they've, yeah, they've sort of helped grow that. Obviously, uh, in tandem with with uh, an institution like Muder Lambic, um, the bar um, or the two bars now um, in Brussels, you know they sort of helped incubate this new this new generation. Um, yeah, and they'll always they'll always have an important place in the city's beer firmament. I know, uh, and you shouldn't sugarcoat that either. Like they, they <laughs> some people don't like Cantillon. Um, because there's a particular label, uh, the Rosé Cambrinus label, which mm-hmm. is cens- censored in the US, um, not over here. Um, and there's uh, certain uh, feelings around that particular label, um, which causes people not to want to uh, frequent or or give business to the, to the brewery. And I completely understand that. Um, but uh, yeah, just because of who they are, people will continue to visit and respect them and look to them to see, you know, what's happening and, 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 uh, you know, what's coming down the line. We talked about historically when we'd read articles about the tradition of Lambic brewing that it would, you know, I'm sure I, if you would go back 20 years, I've written articles that said that Lambic and spontaneous fermented, fermented beer could only be brewed, you know, in, in this particular part of, of Brussels. And that, that was what we were, or in, in Belgium, this is what we were always told, um, and then when you you visit, you note that this is, as you said, it's a very industrial urban area. And while you know the microflora of the area is important, it, you know the barrel aging is is probably key. And we've learned in the states and other around the world that we are able to do the spontaneous fermentation. You know, almost not almost anywhere, but in in quite a few places, at least places yep. where the weather is 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 okay for for it, and it doesn't get too hot. This seems to be an issue that you know, perhaps Cantillon is going to have to deal with in the future, and not just the the benefit, and not just having to deal with lager or hazy IPA, and 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 whether or not that will challenge it, but also climate change. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this is a this is I know that Cantillon often brewed in October through April, and now you know it's maybe getting too hot in those months, uh, and so it's moving maybe into November. Um, you know, for those who have sort of these images of pastoral settings in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Cantillon is not necessarily that. How do you think climate change is going to impact brewing at Cantillon? Well, Cantillon are uniquely, well, they're particularly vulnerable because they have a very ascetic way of making Lambic that isn't the standard in the sector. So mm-hmm. they have a very hands-off, let nature and time do its thing. If it's hot, it's hot. If it's cold, it's cold. Um, we'll do our best to sort of manage that, but we're not going to do anything to interrupt the cycle. So mm-hmm. what that what that means in practical terms is where a brewery like Tilcana in the countryside or others might climate control, which is totally like, a, this This is not a criticism, this is just, I mean, you can do it if you want to, there's no rules to say that you can't, who would climate control their, um, their barrel stores 
can't or won't because mm-hmm. they don't believe they believe that they've got to work with what they've got which means that um which means two things uh one the brewing season is going to get shorter now it's not going to be obvious but over the spread of 15 20 years it's going to become clearer that as you said you know we're what are we we're the 20th of october 21st of october recording this it's like 17 degrees outside mm-hmm. you know it's it's a little chillier now but you know we've been having crazy crazy weather as i think everybody else had so the season's getting shorter but the summers are getting warmer and that's the greater threat because you can and they and they'll probably i mean i i i did a did an article about climate change and lambic a couple of years ago and i talked to john about this because there was a research paper done they installed um temperature sensors around the brewery to get an empirical sense of like what the temperature changes are but we've been having uh summers where it's been over 30 35 degrees for more than a week mm-hmm. um, and that might not uh, celsius so i don't know what that translates to Dude. in 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 fahrenheit but i suppose not it's hot even. it's very hot it's hot and then basically that's that that kills the lambic because yep. again it's it goes back to that temperature the warmer the temperature is the more likely the beer is going to be inoculated with um undesirable mm-hmm. microbes so the the lambic just vinegars in the barrels and that's that's the danger and you talk to john and he'll tell you like the, the different barrels in different parts of the brew house react differently because right down in the cellar it's a couple of degrees cooler than it might be upstairs but they can they only have so much room to maneuver in terms of moving barrels around now they have a second barrel store uh and one street over um where they've been able to expand production um but they're limited in their space they're limited in what sean is willing to do mm-hmm. in terms of managing climate change but it's true uh it is of brew styles uniquely susceptible because it is at the at the oh what am i words it's exposed to the elements mm-hmm. in, in that sense um and it remains to be seen what they can do i mean when it comes to the brewing the brewing season there are ways around that you know you just brew more in the time that you have mm-hmm. but then you put then you put the brewery and the brewers under pressure um or you brew less yep. and you just accept that production uh, declines and you know Cantillon are lucky people will <laughs> the the demand for Cantillon Lambic is inelastic yes if I remember if I remember my ma- microeconomics from <laughs> university people will buy it no matter what the cost yes it is sort of singular in that respect and so yeah. maybe maybe they will survive better than others um Okay, we've done a lot of history, a lot of lot of information about tradition, and and now it's time to get into some more of a, a nitty gritty travel podcast uh, details. Yeah. We're going to get into what we call a rapid fire lightning round. We'll just do <laughs> okay. some quick quick questions, off the cuff answers, first things that come to mind. We'll start with you. Have friends come in from out of town. Where's the first place you're going to take them? Lecoq. And why? Cafe Lecoq. Why? Because it's close to my house. <laughs> <laughs> no, because it's one of these classic brown cafes, which um, has Stella on tap, but a, a very large bottle list of all the local brewers. And if people are coming into the city and and they're not interested in Lambic, they're not interested in, in lager, uh, but they're actually interested in hazy IPA, where are you going for them? Um, I'd probably go uh, either La Source uh, which is La Source Beer Co., which is a uh, brew pub and tap room uh, just around the corner from Brasso de la Seine. Actually, they've opened three or four years ago and they brew uh, actually weekly new styles, uh, hazy IPAs, cold IPAs, mountain IPAs. Um, they also brew n- normal beers too. <laughs> uh, them or L'Hermitage, who are just across the street from uh, Cantillon. How have locals responded to La Source? Uh, you know, it's one of those, I've only seen it online. I have not been there in person. I'm hoping to do so when I'm in, in Brussels in a few weeks time. Uh, but it looks for those uh, Americans and and others who are in more of the modern era of breweries, it looks like a very Instagram friendly kind of place. It's it's one that you would you would feel very familiar in if you have spent any time drinking hazy IPAs almost anywhere on the planet. Um, yeah, you know what is what is La Source's story, and and how has but it been? It, how has it been re- you know, received? Well, that's funny because I took Joe Stang, who's the uh, mm-hmm. editor, uh, writer, friend of mine, editor of uh, Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, and he was like, "Yes, this is this. I could be in the U.S. right now." Yes, yeah. <laughs> and then he was like, "Bring me somewhere Belgian." Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I think, as, you know, going back to what you were saying about, you know, you uh, you go to England, you expect everybody to be drinking, you know, Cascale. Yeah. But just like everybody else, people in Belgium also want to drink modern mm -hmm. styles, you know. Uh, and La Source have been, uh, you have been very good now. Um, I'll put a disclaimer out. I did make an IPA with them this summer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know how biased I am. Uh, but they've been really good because they're sort of this the, the template of the modern brewery because they're uh, they have a tap room. And anyone who's been to Belgium will know that visiting breweries in Belgium historically is really difficult yes. because they're like totally unfriendly. <laughs> uh, because they're all about production. Yes. And, and if you want to come and buy beers or look at the brewery, they were like, uh, no. Uh, yes. Or... You can come with 20 people and we'll do something for you. Yeah. Uh, so uh, La Source, uh, they opened their tap room. Oh, I can't remember when it was a few years ago. And they served straight from the tank, which was an innovation at the time. Uh, and it's really good. Like, I, I think, you know, they brew a real mix of styles. So they have their core, which is, again, a sort of hoppy, light, pale beers. But they do a really good line in particularly actually in 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 tart and mixed fermentation so not lambic but things like uh, Groot beers mm -hmm. uh, roses those sorts of interesting beers they do some Berliner Weisses as well um, you know quick sour quick sour beers as well they're really interesting and they're really fun and they are very international uh, yep. they they served at Firestone Walker's Invitational mm -hmm. uh, this summer which frankly blew the minds of several people <laughs> in the beer scene here because they are so small like we you know we're talking about breweries that are very small yeah like we're not, like, you know, we're not talking about big breweries here. Cantillon and Brussels Beer Project, uh, Delacene and Brussels Beer Project accepted. Um, but our source are really fun. They do some really nice beers. They rarely produce a dud beer, which is, I think, mm -hmm. you know, um, which is important for a new brewery uh, establishing themselves. And they've got a good purchase on the market here. You're talking about small breweries and also ones that uh, you name check there. Uh, tell me about L'Hermitage. L'Hermitage. So there are three guys. Um, Art school graduates. Um, the brewery is in an old cigarette factory around the corner from um, Cantillon. And they actually have a bottle shop directly across the street from Cantillon, mm -hmm. which is a beer and natural wine shop, which give you a sense mm. of where, 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 where yep. their interest lies. Um, so they, again, started off with one beer, Lantern, which is a sort of a pale ale, American pale ale, um, you know, modern hops, uh, West Coast hops, that sort of thing. And... They've since branched out into funkier experiments. They did a beer actually with Jean Lamont from Cantillon. He did a sort of a side project, hmm. an off-brand a beer. They've made uh, lambic lambic beer blends with with Cantillon. They do a lot of uh, wine wine blends. So, working with wineries in France, they've produced some sort of grape ales, I suppose is what you call them, or or wine beer hybrids. Um, they make IPAs too. They make hazy IPAs, not as many as they used to. Um. And they're really interesting, yeah, because they they sort of they've taken that lamp they've taken that Cantillon sort of experimentation with wine one step further, and also into beers that aren't traditionally, you know, uh, lambics. I'm not sure if the list for this next lightning round question will be be long, but uh, you've talked, you know, after you've had your friend at Lecoq and and had the Stella there, where else are you going for for lager beer? Lager beer, well, there's, I mean, nowadays there's only one place to go for lager beer, which is Brasserie La Mule. It's a long way from Lecoq, um, so you'd want to get in your Uber or your taxi, mm -hmm. um, or get on your bike, actually, is probably what I should say. Um, and that is a, is a brewery set up in, in the Scarbeck neighborhood, so that's to the sort of west, north, northwest, northeast uh, of, of Brussels, um, and they opened last year, um, and their first beer out of the gate was a, was a Hefeweizen. Which has since been followed up by a Hellas, a Kölsch, um, a Vienna Lager, which I brewed with them, which is excellent, by the way. Uh, still on, <laughs> still, still on tap. Um, and they're uh, they did a Dunkelweizer. They've they've got some Rauch. Uh, I don't know if they're doing Rauch actually, but they've got uh, Schwarzbier in the fermentation tanks. Um, really, and uh, they had an Oktoberfest actually uh, party last two weeks ago. So that is the real place to go if you wanna if you wanna taste sort of locally brewed lager. There's also Brasserie de la Sense taproom across the canal then um, where you can get some uh, 500 milliliter pints of uh, of Xenopils. And what is one uh, can't-miss historic bar? Um, I like Alabacas. Hmm. So um, that is uh, actually it's just around the corner. So if you're in Brussels and you're on the Grand Place, it's just down the hill. Uh, 
across from a church down a dark alleyway, which used to be a road that would take you to a graveyard. Mm. The graveyard of the church, which is still there. Uh, graveyard since long, long, long since disappeared. Um, and it's this uh, wood panels um, bar where the waiters and the bar staff wear gray smocks and they serve lambic by the jug. Now, it's not the best lambic, mm -hmm. but that's not really the point. You can sure. get a jug of you can get a jug that goes, I think, from like 200 milliliters up to four or six liters. Um, and it's lambic do. So it's sweetened soft lambic. Um, not good. So it's unblended. Um, and it's just as an experience, it's a lot of fun. There's also then I'd say probably choice number two. Uh, just down the road. I'm a man of habit, so I usually stick to the same places. Um, there's a there's a place called Tone, uh, which is a puppet theater, uh, a folk puppet theater. They have the theater is in the, is in the cellar, or not in the cellar, in the in the attic, and on the ground floor they have a cafe and a stamina. It's what we would call it in 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 Brussels. Um, and it's full of these marionette puppets, traditional Brussels marionette puppets. Um, and it's protected in terms of, uh, you know, architectural heritage. And they've got good beer on the menu too. You're going to get like, you're going to get some, some De La Seine there, but you'll also get, you know, the old reliables or Val and, uh, and the Trappists. Yeah. Tone is, is usually at the end of the show, I, I give sort of one of my sort of secret suggestions or, or one that we haven't covered. That was going to be it. So thanks a lot for that on. Um, it's a really Sorry, make you work harder, you know? Yes. It's a really fantastic place. Just down that long alley. It's yeah. just so creepy and weird inside with the, with the puppets. Um, but just fantastic. It's a really, it's a and, great place. And it's, it's just off the beaten track. It's not yes. off the beaten track at all, but there are two other laneway cafes on the same street, which are always much busier mm -hmm. and much more geared towards tourism. This place has, in the best of Belgian traditions, weird opening hours. There's a mm -hmm. cat running around, you know, and the bar <laughs> and the bar is secondary to. I mean, the bar is the money maker for the theater, but um, you know, the theater is the main event. And mm -hmm. You can get a beer and then you can go upstairs and 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 watch the puppet show. What would you say is a one can't miss beer bar? Oh, um, oh, that's a good question. Can I? Hmm. You I can have a you can have a runner runner up as well. I should have done my. I like. Uh, ooh, can I say a cheese? There's a cheese bar which also <laughs> serves beer, um, which is very nice. Uh, which is called La Fruitière, uh, which is just around the corner from Mutter Lambic. They have an excellent lambic and uh, conventional beer selection. Um, as a runner-up, that's a good question. I like. Uh, there's a bar Dinamo uptown in Saint Gilles. On the way out of town, uh, which is very nice. You won't find much Belgian beer there, um. So mm -hmm. I know, <laughs> I know, I've recommended it to people, and they've gone in, like yeah, English people, and they've gone in, and the, and the menu has been just floor to ceiling Manchester beers, <laughs> which is you know, which is great for us because then we get to taste some really lovely beers. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, there's Hist, which is in in the center of town, which is relatively new. Um, oh. Yeah, it's a tough one. I'm a man of, like I said, I'm a creature of a habit. Booze and Blues is a good bar, actually, uh, which is, which has uh, De La Seine on tap and then has a good selection of other sort of contemporary beers. I know there will be I'm, people. I'm, I'm probably, somebody's probably really <laughs> upset. I probably insulted a really good friend of mine now by by not recommending their, their, their Brussels Beer Project. Tap Room is quite nice, too. They always have a good selection of of of, of farm beers, too, but it's mostly BBP stuff. Um yeah, I've probably insulted somebody by not saying their bar. I know that there will be people listening to this podcast who will, you know, have heard the name, but will expect at least, you know, 20 seconds on it. So give me 20 seconds on on Mütter or however long on Mütter Lambic and its role yeah. in the city. Yeah, I'm probably doing them down, but um, it's very far away from my house, Mütter Lambic original. So <laughs> Mütter Lambic, Mütter Lambic uh, long story short, was taken over in 2006. It's been a bar that's been around since the 80s, always known for its beer. In 2006, it was taken over by Sean Humler and... Uh, some colleagues, and they basically totally renovated the place, renewed it, focused on independent beer. That was their that was their thing. Independent beer, uh, no nothing industrial, as local as possible. Interesting, exciting beers. They would have had uh, Cantillon Creek on a on a hand pull. Um, they expanded in two thousand nine to Boudelamic Fontaines, which is in the center of Brussels, just around the corner from the Grand Place. Uh, similarly uh, focused on local beer, but also Italian, German, French, um, a lot of American beer as well. Very good, 
stellar. And along with Cantillon and Delacen, even though they don't serve Delacen anymore because there's a feud, um, we're sort of the three main instigators of the Brussels beer revival. And I, as you mentioned them, and we have name-checked Devon de Bats and, and talked about Devacen. Uh, another 30 seconds on Devacen. Yeah, I mean, the OG... The OG of the OGs, what can mm-hmm. I say? I'm totally biased uh, of them. So this year, they celebrated the 20th year of the first brew of Zinnabier, uh, which was brewed in 2002 in the basement of a squat in central Brussels. Uh, eventually, they opened, uh, they 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 founded the brewery in 2003 with uh, Bernard Lebouc uh, as the brewer and Ivan as a sort of brewing uh, consultant. Uh, and then in 2006, they started Delison proper brewing in breweries like uh, Duranka, who we known for their mm-hmm. XX Bitter, uh, Thierrier in France, known for their Saisons. Um, and then in 2009, they opened a brewery themselves in, or 2009-2010, they opened the brewery in Molenbeek, um, which is in the west of Brussels, famous for their, you know, bitter relative at that time, um, bitter beers using uh, old world hops, focused on pale drinkable beers, but also great beers like Jean de Bois, which is their triple, which is sort of a more assertively bitter triple, uh, Stout de Rick, which is their, which is their dry Irish stout, which is fantastic. Uh, and then in 2020, they opened, which was by then the first purpose-built brewery in Brussels since probably the interwar period uh, at Tour and Taxi, which is a big complex, a former um, train, train yard uh, on the canal. Uh, a fantastic new brewery um, with a actually probably the best tap room in the city. Yeah, maybe joint best. Um, and yeah, just without Delacen, we wouldn't probably be having this conversation. What is the best beer day trip from Brussels? Ooh, uh, oh yeah, play uh the Zena Valley. Uh, get the train and go and stop at uh, t- take it down, and you can get off, and you can stop in Bursingen, and you can go to uh, Den Herberg and drink their lambic. You can get back on, get off at Lot. You can walk to Driefontaine to the Lambico Drome, and you can drink their beers. Get back on the train, take the train further, and get off in Lembeck on the other side of Halle, and you can go to Bone, who now have a tap, who now have their own mm. bar for the first time, first first time ever actually. Um, and then you can get back on the train and. If you're lucky and it's the weekend, you get off the train, you can go to L'Hermitage when you get back. But yeah, it has to be. Oh, and then you should go for lunch at uh, Three Fontaine Restaurant, which is not affiliated to the brewery in Beersel, um, to just, you know, soak up some of the alcohol. Any breweries or or bars that you think they need to step up their games or have been slacking? No, no comment. <laughs> this is <laughs> this a, is what do you want a what a trap? I'm not. It is it I'm is a trap, it. but it is actually elicited interesting responses in the other episodes. I'm not gonna. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I'm gonna be an absolute. I'm gonna be shamelessly, you know, scared and say uh, no. And I will use the cover of the economic crisis which we're currently in. To Fair say, enough. To say that nobody needs me shitting on their beers right now. Pardon <laughs> my French. Um, I think the breweries who have been slacking will not survive in the next 18 months. Mm. Uh, you you will get an answer to that question. Uh, the market will answer that question. <laughs> Interesting. Good response. Good response. Uh, what For beer lovers who also want a great meal, where would you recommend they go? Oh, so many places nowadays. Um, if you want a hearty Belgian, Noit uh, Nigenuk. Uh, which is a a bar, which is a, a tiny, tiny restaurant, which is about eight tables. Uh, but they do take reservations now. They used to not used to have to queue up for an hour to get in. Um, and they have uh house beers from some of the best breweries in the country. You may, you need, want, you may need to spell that one for us. Oh, oh, uh, N U E T N I G E N O U G H. Okay, that's close enough. We should be able to Google that one. Yeah. Uh, if you want Italian, uh, there's a there's a an Italian restaurant called Latana, um, which is also in the center by Valeriotto, who used to run a, a restaurant in Rome, and it's really excellent food. But more so, the beer is fantastic. Again, he's got a great Belgian selection, but he's also got a fantastic selection of sort of mixed farmhouse spontaneous fermentation beers from from all over Northern Europe, and it being an Italian restaurant. Excellent Italian, Italian food, uh, or Italian beers. La Fruitiere, as I said, is a cheese bar, 
fantastic, like the best place to buy. If you like Comte, you have to go there and they'll just you can just eat Comte until you die. Uh, but they've got great cheese plates and and excellent beers as well. Uh, Pasta Madre is a is a is a is a pizzeria which is a collaboration between an Italian pizzaiola, uh, Mudalambic and Cantillon. So you can imagine what the tap list looks like mm-hmm. looks like there. And then there's other restaurants. Again, I'm probably insulting people by not mentioning them. Uh, out of town, towards in 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 the southern suburbs, there are some nice nice restaurants. And yeah, if you do manage to get out of town, uh, Dri Fontaine Cafe in Beersel is really yeah at, at top of the list. We only got a few more questions here, but uh, one I'd be curious along the lines of Italian food. What's with the uh, Belgians and Brussels beer cafes and um, bolognese? Well, now. I'm I'm cutting the knees off myself because I've always wanted to write about this. <laughs> but so um in the 1950s Belgium and Italy set up one of these uh, guest worker programs. So a huge amount of Italian migrants came to Belgium to work in the mines of Limburg and Wallonia. Um and they contributed a huge amount to Belgium. Uh, one of that is uh a singer whose uh, whose name I can't remember, Rocco uh, something or other, um, very popular. Um, they produced several good footballers, Enzo Schifo being being amongst <laughs> amongst them. Um, but they also introduced yeah spaghetti bolognese, uh, and it's an easy dish to make. Like I the the local bar I go to, which I haven't mentioned, uh, which is which I I usually go Friday nights when the kids are swimming. I run around the corner for a beer, and then when the hour's up, I go back. Um, which has no kitchen to speak of, but it will produce you a spaghetti bolognese, a vegetarian bolognese, and a vegan bolognese. Mm. Um, all of them from a kitchen I probably wouldn't want to take a look at. But it's just <laughs> it's just easy, easy, hearty food. You know, that's the the best of uh, like Belgian cooking. Best place for a nightcap. Uh, Le Brasseur or Le Coq. Uh, two late bars that stay open reasonably until reasonably late hours and you can get in Le Brasseur you can get Lambic by the jug from Bone which is always nice and what place deserves a second look something that may have been popular at one point or or things that oh. you know have maybe fallen off of the beer geek radar that's a that's a that's also a good question um the beer geek radar yeah see beer geeks they know everything before I do. Do you know that? Um, <laughs> as a as a father of two not so young children anymore, but still quite young, I'm always the last one to know. Um, yeah, I think a brewery like Brussels Beer Project, because it's in the supermarkets and it's widely available, I think sometimes they get a little bit overlooked in terms of like the trendsetters in the city. Um, they've also started, which is sort of for anyone who knows the brewery kind of quixotic uh, a lambic and spontaneous fermentation program which is actually really good like the beers are excellent and I'm not saying that just because I know the people who are making them but uh, yeah I think you know sometimes brewers are look or drinkers are looking for like the niche or the new or the edgy and they make those beers too and they might for- forget that that brewery has been around for you know seven years so I think yeah check them out is delirium worth visiting Oh, delirium! I forgot about delirium. <laughs> um, it depends. It depends and where. It depends what would you? Where what, you how would you? How would you describe delirium in two sentences? To delirium. To delirium is a is a daycare center for seventeen uh, <laughs> year old Americans. <laughs> true. That's harsh. That's harsh, but it's also true. It's fair. Um, no, delirium. Delirium. I think yeah, it's an important step on someone's beer journey. Fair. If I'm not be if that's not condescending, um, it's a place where you will get to taste all of the beers that you want to taste. I would say if you go go early in the day, it's an experience. Yes, I mean in the same way, I'm sure that you'd recommend you know, like what's if I ask like what's the classic? Uh, you're from Massachusetts, right? Or yes, in Boston. Yep. Yeah, like what's the classic Bostonian institution that you should visit just to experience it? Yeah, yep. delirium is certainly that, but don't go on a Friday, don't go on a Saturday, <laughs> and don't drink out of the boot. What about uh, same question, but for Mort Subit? Oh, Mort Subit, of course. No, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Mort Subit is it's oh, it's, I wouldn't categorize Mort Subit and delirium in the same sentence at all. Uh, Mort Subit is an absolute classic. Um, 
which you definitely must visit, if only for the surly waiting service. Mm-hmm. Um, the beers are good. I actually really enjoyed this. They, they serve a beer there, uh, a Lambic Blanche. You can't really get it anywhere else. Uh, their Mort Subit is the, is the brewery that serves those beers, obviously. Um, no, uh, a beautiful place. Uh, massive omelets the size of your face. Um, <laughs> good beers. Yeah, they have the standard beers as well. Um, but no, Mort Subit, just for the fact that it, that it exists, um, absolutely is definitely a must. There is one bar um, which I would have recommended with sadly RIP closed down in the summer um, and they haven't gotten a new ownership. That was uh, the uh, Fleur en Papier Doré, um, which was like an old surrealist bar. Um, mm. But no, absolutely more to beat. And, and it's oh, just around the corner from the train station. So if you are if you need a beer, don't go to the Brew Dog across the street, walk around the corner, go to more to beat. A lot of Americans, a lot of folks visiting want to bring you know beer back. Uh, where What's the store? What's the best place to go to, to fill up your backpack or your suitcase? Uh, well, all the breweries sell beer now direct, so you can go to them. Um, but I, I'd be, be remiss if I didn't mention the place where my sort of beer journey began as a sort of craft beer, annoying craft beer nerd, which was Malta Tax, which is a short walk up the hill. Well, short is about 20 minutes up the hill from Lermitage and Cantillon. Um, and they have a great selection of uh, the local beers, so Brussels beers. Um, independent Belgian beers, so the best that you can think of, like uh, Deranka and uh, Mina and all of the other classics. Um, and they have a great Lambic selection too. And Antoine is always there to give uh, to give great advice. Owen, where can people find your work? Um, uh, BeerCity.Brussels is probably the best place. Um, I'm sort of trying not to be on social media mm-hmm. quite as much, so you won't find me Instagramming very much. And on Facebook, so the the website is usually the best, uh, the best place to find me. And you can find out information about the articles that I've written, the books that I've published. You can go back into the podcast back catalog if you're really interested. Um, but yeah, that's the best place. Owen Walsh, I want to thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to do these talks, and hopefully, we'll be able to get to uh, beer together here, maybe in a couple weeks, even. We'll see. It's been great to talk to you, Andy. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the Beer Travelers podcast. If you have a suggestion for a town we should visit next please drop us a line at podcast at allaboutbeer.com. Please give our podcast a review wherever you listen. It really helps folks find out about us. And if you like the episode, tell a friend and post on your socials. Interested in learning more about connecting with an engaged, energetic, and interested audience of curious beer consumers and brewers? We have many different advertising opportunities, including through our podcasts, website, newsletter, and social media channels. For more information, please contact us at podcast at allaboutbeer.com. So my special pick for where to go in Brussels is a two-minute walk from the beauty and touristic splendor that is the Grand Place. Tucked at the end of a narrow corridor off one of these windy streets, you will find the delightfully quirky Tune, a combination marionette theater and small cafe. As you walk down the street, look up for the theater signage and head straight through to the cafe. The Royal Tune Puppet Theater, as it is known, is upstairs, But the downstairs cafe, filled with beautiful marionette artwork and plenty of character, is where we'll be stopping. It has the equally quirky quack on taff, which is my go-to. And you can walk through the several rooms to check out many of the thousands of puppets that the theater has on offer. And as Owen and I noted during the episode, Tune is definitely worth a stop. Stop living vicariously through other people's social media posts and get out and make some memories of your own. Join Pub Culture Beercations for one of our upcoming tours and start exploring the world one pint at a time with us. Visit pubculturebeercations.com for more information. All About Beer is back, and we're asking for your support to help provide the independent beer media this rich and colorful industry deserves. Visit our website, allaboutbeer.com, where we're frequently posting new content. And please consider throwing us a few bucks at patreon.com allaboutbeer. We have low-cost memberships for individuals and small and large companies alike. Every dollar goes to help produce new articles and podcasts.